Well, good morning, church. It's good to see all of you this morning. Thanks, Sharon. Glad Sharon's happy to see me. The rest of you, whatever, you know. Fine. The sermon just got harsher, right? So, hey, uh, we're going to take our young people. You can head to children's worship now uh, and have a good time kind of getting a lesson in time just tailored right to you. And so the rest of us, you can grab a Bible. You're opening it to Habakkuk chapter 2 this morning. And so uh, excited to spend a little bit of time. As, you, as you're turning to Habakkuk, uh, let, me just, let me just mention a couple things. Um, one, Tesla, you can't go yet. Oh, that's Torah. Well, they all look the same. You know, you have enough of them. Trust me. I call my own kids by the wrong names, Zoe. So, uh, hey, a couple, couple things as we're uh, beginning to get into the series. Uh, I want to just remind you of, first is um, kind of in the, the reality of the world we live in right now, and a, a quick reminder of all that is going on. Uh, one of the things we've seen over the last month, and, and I'm sure you're aware of, is uh, in the county and in the surrounding area, the level of COVID-confirmed cases has risen uh, probably more dramatically than it had been in the past. And so uh, just a good reminder that we share uh, this really awesome privilege that we get to come, uh, worship together, continue to do this. Uh, we've been doing this for several months now, and uh, really I think in all of this it has increased our level of gratitude for the ability to join together as the church in worship. We find this is really important, really vital, and really wonderful that God allows us to do so. Uh, and so I would, I would just encourage you to do a couple things. One, uh, like if you get called to quarantine, for the sake of everybody else, make sure you do that. Don't come here um, because ultimately uh, what we don't want is we don't want to lose that privilege uh, because of uh, the inability to meet and still be submitting to the government regulations and kind of the, the laws and governing authorities around us. And so uh, be respectful in that and wise in that as well as continue to uh, move forward in social distancing and appropriate precautions because if we can lay down some preferences to continue to have the ability to meet freely and worship the Lord together, which we find is so valuable. Uh, we always want to be doing that, and so praise the Lord for that. The second thing, and I think much more important, is continue to pray that God continues to protect this place and the ability for us to gather together with his saints. Uh, we've been meeting now since June and been really, uh, uh, I think, experiencing a great deal of blessing from the Lord. We haven't had uh, a whole lot of issue or concern that has made us think like, oh, we need to go back to a virtual environment or that uh, this might be not a safe place for us to do so and continue to meet in the way we have. And so we just need to pray and continue to depend on the Lord for that to continue to be the case. And so uh, just an encouragement I was thinking through this, this week is uh, let's continue to thank God and pray to God that he would continue to sustain us as a church and as a church body, and uh, we're excited about that. Um, the second thing I want to say is just kind of as we begin to get in Habakkuk, uh, I last night came to church, uh, which is kind of an interesting uh, dynamic for me, we uh, officiated. I we I, I officiated a wedding 
up in Reedsburg yesterday afternoon, and so I uh, kind of knew that time-wise it was going to be tight for me to make it back here for the evening gathering. Uh, in fact, it was tighter than I thought. I actually showed up to the wedding like an hour before I was supposed to, and that's just just my life and the way I schedule things. But there I was, officiated this wedding, and then we uh, kind of out of there in time to get back here before 7 uh, and knew that Josh Montague, one of our mission partners, was here preaching. And so we kind of thought, ah, you know, maybe we just take the, take the night off and relax a little bit. And then uh, we thought, well, it's been a long time since I've just been able to sit with Whitney in a congregation and hear someone preach the Word of God without minding to, like, several responsibilities that I might have here or there. And so uh, without really expecting to be here, I went, well, let's Let's just go and sit and relax and enjoy uh, the sermon, and that I did. And uh, one of the things that was really striking to me was how much that really connected with me and cared for my soul and, and kind of refilled me. Uh, and so not only was it really awesome for me personally, uh, but it was encouraging for me this morning um, because if you don't realize this, uh, I'll just let you in on a secret. I don't think I'm the only pastor that feels this way. Sometimes we get up here and preach and go, does this even make any difference? You get out to the parking lot and you live your same lives and it's like it doesn't even have an effect on you, right? And that's your fault, in part, right? Listen, however, uh, it, also, it also brought some conviction to me to go, no, like, we deliver the Word of God as a church, and it's, it's not about me, I'm just, I'm just the tool being used at this particular time, and someday there'll be someone else here, and uh, that person will be the tool being used at that particular time to deliver to us as a congregation God's Word through the proclaiming of His Word that He, in the work of His Holy Spirit, superpowers that charges it in a way that it changes and impacts the way that we would walk forth in wisdom and godliness. And so, praise the Lord for that. Uh, in fact, it was a reaffirming conviction as to why we really build our Sunday morning gatherings, our weekend gatherings, and centerpiece them around the Word of God and the proclaiming, the preaching of the Word of God, instead of some other way, shape, or format because ultimately, consistently throughout history, God uses the preaching of his word, the preaching of the truth, as a method, or, and really I would say the primary method, of life transformation and change in and throughout all the scriptures. That those who believe and call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and how will that happen unless they hear, and how will they hear unless someone is sent Blessed are those who bring good news of good things, who are preaching the good news of God. Which brings us to, now if you have your Bible and have gotten there, to Habakkuk, who happens to be a prophet some 2,600 years ago, who is doing just that. Preaching and proclaiming, as the other prophets do, the word of God. That he is one who is calling out and proclaiming the good news according to God in the gospel. All right, so pray with me, and then let's uh, review a little bit, catch you up in Habakkuk, and move forward in the way that he closes out this uh, minor prophecy, this three-chapter book, uh, and really kind of helps us in the way that we might understand today. Heavenly Father, grateful for the truth of your word, 
I'm grateful that we uh, can join together as your people and declare it as true, declare it as necessary, declare it as valuable, and that it would tie us tightly to you, that it would draw us in to a deeper fellowship with you. For those, those of us who maybe have n- not known you, have never placed our faith in you, that, that your word might move in power, that it might be, maybe today is the day that we lay down and submit our lives to you, to believe in you for the very first time. And for many of us who, who have made that commitment in our lives, that maybe today is a reminder and a reaffirmation of how much we are meant to trust in you in all things, in all circumstances, no matter what might happen, that if we have you, we have enough. And so guide us in that, remind us of that, encourage us in that when all things around us might be going awry that we would trust so deeply in you. We pray it by the the work of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son. Amen. Hey, Habakkuk chapter uh, 1, we're going to pick up and kind of move. And and the goal is by the end of today that we'll be through the book of Habakkuk. uh, And then we'll have one week left where we consider one more minor prophet, Zephaniah. And then uh, we're going to move on uh, into, I think, 1 Peter after that. But in doing so, I want to just kind of give you the the overarching themes again in what we were trying to accomplish in this series. So we spent now several weeks working through some minor prophets. We were in Micah and Nahum and now Habakkuk. And so uh, we picked these particular prophets for a reason. It wasn't, we didn't do this in a vacuum and just go, ah, you know, let me thumb through and boom, okay, here this sounds good. Rather, we looked at the world around us and said, in particular, in the climate that we live in, what what might we see in the scripture that would help us navigate in these times, in uh, a crazy election cycle, in a pandemic, in uh, social unrest, in all of this kind of tense and turbulent stuff in the world, what, what we look at. And I think if there's just one thing you take away from this whole series, and, and I, I beg of you to take more than one thing away from the series, but if you just take one, okay, here's, here's what I think we would get to, is no matter what, no matter how tempted we are to kind of get sucked into this narrative that we live in unprecedented times, that we live in a it's never been this bad kind of mentality, and I think that the prevailing narrative culturally right now is, is trying to get you to believe that. It's, you know, it's politically, things are more turbulent. Socially, things are more turbulent. Uh, environmentally, things are more turbulent. Uh, in pandemic, things are more turbulent. That Everything just seems like it's rolling downhill, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and no matter what, you would look and go, it's never been, this is unprecedented, it's never been this way, that the Bible is going to draw us back to the truth that it is not unprecedented with God. And that while you and I might live now here in a time, in a place that is unlike what we might have experienced before in our lifetime, that ultimately God is not mocked and he's not surprised and he's not looking upon the United States or anywhere else in the world right now going, oh man, I've never seen something like this before. 
That's not God. That, in fact, what we know is that consistently, since the beginning of creation, shortly after this, man sins, right? Adam and Eve eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. It enters into the world a rebellion against God that has always existed and will exist until mankind is done away with and God reestablishes his kingdom on earth, new heaven, new earth, and we are with him for eternity. Now in that, what that means for us is though we might walk through from our perspective unprecedented times, difficult circumstances, we can take great hope and great encouragement to know that God's, God's seen things like this before. He's, he's ordained and navigated through things like this before. That there is no beginning and there is no end with him. There is no ambulance that he shows up in to try to fix things that are broken, but rather that in the midst of all circumstances, we trust a God who is sovereign. We trust a God who is in control. And so in this, we looked back at a situation where God's chosen people, the nation of Israel and the nations of Judah, uh, find themselves in very dire situations. In fact, uh, we began in Micah, and the central theme of Micah's prophecy is, kingdom of Israel, you're going to be destroyed. And you're going to be exiled out, and your great cities and lands are going to be flattened, and they're going to plant fields in them. And you can trust God. And you can trust God. And Habakkuk now, writing about 100 years later, is looking at the nation of Judah and going, guess what? I see all this injustice. I see all this brokenness. I see all of these ungodly things beginning to reign and it's almost like God has taken his thumb off the pulse and he goes where are you God God says oh I haven't gone anywhere in fact I'm doing something right now in your days you wouldn't believe it if I told you and here's how here's how this comes to fruition watch this I'll tell you God goes on to tell him, I'm raising up this impetuous people, the Chaldeans, these, these Babylonian warriors who are angry and swift and serve no justice except the justice that they invent. They come carrying people off consistently. In fact, their methodology as an empire was to build themselves on war and pain and death. They would invade enemy territories, they'd destroy as much as they could, and they would take as many people as they could and bring them back so that they could assimilate them to Babylonian culture, right? Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They take the choicest people inside of every land that they conquer and would draw them into their place and begin to teach them, educate them and assimilate them so that they could make them part of the Babylonian Empire. It was their methodology. In fact, as Habakkuk responds to God's note of this, he's going to uh, affirm exactly what God just said. You're right, I don't believe you. I don't believe you, God. Uh, you are everlasting, but we won't die. We, we couldn't die, right? That's what we said last week, is that, that his first objection is like, oh, God, can you uh, recheck the test? Because I think you missed um, some things here. Uh, this certainly 
could not be the case. You couldn't let this people do this. And his rationale for that is because they're worse than we are. Right? And, and uses this kind of lateral or horizontal form of judgment that we tend to get ourselves into, which is like, hey, come on, I know that I'm sinful, but like, have you seen that guy? Like, I'm definitely not as bad as him, right? And God's answer, uh, in, fact, in, in fact, before we even get to what God's going to say back, Habakkuk continues and and even describes exactly what the Chaldeans are like. And think of this uh, as we unfold this a little bit later today. In the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 14, he says, Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. So he uses fishing metaphor or analogy to describe what these people are like. He says, they're like fishermen. They go out into all these nations and they capture people and they bring them all back by the objects of their war and dominion and they're pulling people from everywhere and it's expanding and building their empire as a people of great unrest and as a people of injustice. They're plundering nations, destroying them, and they're building everything they are based on their fierce Injust security of self. And he says, not only that, but they're worshiping the very things that they've used to do this. And so they begin to be a people of idolatry, worshiping the tools of war, building out idols to worship as gods of war that would strengthen and make them better and better. And Habakkuk from afar can see this and see how evil Babylon is and go, hey, how are you going to let that stand, God? How could you possibly allow for that? Now God in his patience and his mercy is going to respond to both of these arguments. And and I want to just begin in that so that we can see how Habakkuk is going to finally take a deep breath and get it. And give us some final encouragement as to how we might think in times like these based on the way he thinks in times like those. So the first, right, is God, you, you couldn't possibly allow this to happen, right? Um, I think Habakkuk interprets this the way that my kids uh, interpret coming discipline at times, right? Like parents, you're going you're gonna to kind of get this, right? There are times when I look at my children, uh, and there's one that gets looked at like this quite often, maybe more than the other two, uh, but I won't tell you her name. Uh, and so in that, right, there's, there's a conversation in disobedience that goes like this. Child, you're about to get a spanking. Now, how many times does that end in a spanking? Maybe about Well, with this one, it's about 70% of the time. Uh, However, there is a three out of ten times where there is a moment of sobriety that comes that goes, better stop this. Because if I don't, some bad things are coming down the line. And if said child decides, you know what, I don't want that, I will stop, 
spanking doesn't come, right? That's free parenting 101. You can say you're going to do something. If they relent, you can take your hand off of that and just go, okay, all right, you got mercy this time. However, for said child, and, and a little bit less, but the other two do this as well, uh, that warning goes unheeded. And so the next time that a note comes out from me, it is, okay, you're going to get a spanking. At that point, it does not matter what happens next, right? It does not matter if they go, okay, no, 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 now I'm done, right? Like, no, you you had a chance to be done, now spanking, and then you're done, right? Get this, parents? Is that not how it works? Maybe you don't spank, but uh, the discipline is negligible. At some point, there is warning of discipline, and then lines have been crossed where discipline is necessary and warnings are no longer. Now it's forecasts. Right? This is coming. You can't change it. And so Habakkuk perceives what God has said as a warning. Right? He's, he's taking it and going, I think what you're saying is uh, Israel, Judah, the nation of Judah, you better repent or I'm going to send these people in to get you. And he goes, no, 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 you wouldn't do that. Well, We'll fix it. We'll get a little better. We're already better than these guys. Let me just, I'll go to work. I'll make some changes in the people. I'll try to help them along, and we'll get some warning. He goes, no, not working that way, bud. Write it in stone. It's coming. Though it tarries, it will not fail. My will will be done here. This is not a get it right warning. This is a wait for it. I am certain this is happening. It will not delay. You need to trust that the only thing that is good for you as a nation now is my coming judgment. Now, there are a couple things we said about this last week. One is that as hard as this is for Habakkuk to hear, this ought to be encouraging because it helps us remember that God is not confounded or defined by time and space. And so he's not limited to know what's going to come next. He already knows and he's determining what is going to come. Consistently through scripture, God is specific about what's about to happen. And not just tomorrow, but rather years and sometimes lifetimes down the road. Let me give you two examples. One comes all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. So Genesis 15, God has made a covenant with a guy named Abram. Now, in this covenant, God has promised Abram that he's going to make out of him a great nation and that that nation will one day be a blessing to all nations. Uh, This beautiful covenant begins God's people of Israel. However, what happens is God makes this covenant and years goes by and Abram doesn't have any kids. And some, some really awkward things are kind of happening in this time because Abram's wife, Sarah, and Abram are really old. And, and so they're getting older, and the idea that they would have kids when God made this covenant was already like kind of laughable, and it's getting worse by the day. So much so that Abram's wife, Sarah, is going to say, hey, maybe you ought to take my maid and have kids there. Maybe God meant it that way. And in this, then God's going to come back years later to Abram, who is struggling, to say the least, with this. In fact, his response to God, who reaffirms this covenant, is, yeah, I know, you keep saying that, God, but I don't have any kids, and Eleazar, my crazy cousin from Damascus, is going to inherit all my stuff. Like, where's this great nation coming from? And God's going to reaffirm his covenant problem 
covenant promise with Abram in Genesis 15. And as he does so, he's going to do some things that I think are pretty incredible. Look at Genesis 15. Pick up with me in verse 12 as God reaffirms this covenant. It says, while the sun was going down, a great deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." Did you catch what's happening here? And this is uh, speaking about the Exodus account. God is talking to Abram and says, here's what's going to happen. 400 years, your descendants, who I'm going to give you, I told you I'm going to give them to you, are going to be in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be oppressed. And not only that, but after that 400 years, I'm going to deliver them out of that land. And he goes so far as to even say, and they'll leave based on the judgment of that land. I'll deal with those people as well as he does in the plagues, in the exodus, and with a great many possessions. Anybody remember what happens with the Israelites, the Hebrew people, before they leave the land of Egypt? Remember what they take? Everything. All the silver, all the gold, all the stuff, and they leave with a great many possessions. 400 years. And get this. Abram, Abraham, you're going to die before any of that happens. And so what do you do? You trust. You trust. You have faith that God knows even beyond what you know. Well beyond what you know. What's so incredible is the Bible continues there and it says that Abram had faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, the basis of the gospel, that Abram has faith in the Lord's promise, covenant, and in that, God credits Abram as righteous, not because he did righteous things, but because he said, this is what I am going to do, and Abram believes it, and he dies with nothing but a promise that God's going to do exactly as he said, and us, in hindsight, get to look back and go, and God did exactly what he promised. In fact, uh, the other one that, that you think of right away, or I think of right away, is one of Habakkuk's contemporaries, a guy named Jeremiah, who is writing to his people in the same time as Habakkuk, as Babylon sets at the doorstep to destroy God's people and exile them out of the land. And what Jeremiah is going to say is God's doing this not purposelessly, but rather to exact exactly what he wants in purpose, which is to make restitution for the 490 years of neglect of his law. You see, when he had put his people in place, he said, here's what you're going to do. Every seventh year, you take a year off of the fields, let them Sabbath. You don't do that, and you're going to miss out on what I've promised you. And so for 400 years, 490 years, God's people go forth, never take a Sabbath year in their fields, and God says, this is what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to send in Babylon, and they're going to exile you out, and I'm going to have my 70 Sabbaths that you have neglected for 70 years. You will go missing. In fact, the very uh, famous verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, that I know the plans for you, declares the Lord's plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in a future, they come right after Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place because I'm going to take you out first. It's in the context of exile will come. And you know what's so incredible? 605 BC, Daniel and others are exiled from Judah by Babylon. Babylon shortly after that besieges the nation of Judah and shortly after that are going to destroy it all together, and everything is gone and awry. It's exactly what Habakkuk is now noting that God's telling him is going to happen. And then, as if this would never possibly be able to come to fruition, Babylon is overthrown by a nation of Persia who at this time doesn't even exist. And in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he takes God's people and sends them back to fulfill down to the year the exact prophecy of God. Consistently throughout the scriptures, God is going to do things years, decades, lifetimes in advance with perfect accuracy and precision known because he's the sovereign God of the universe. I'm going to do this and you can trust me in it. Know that you can trust me. Now, the second thing is Habakkuk's looking and going, these guys are terrible. They're worshiping their fishing nets, right? Like they're taking people out and they're trusting in that. What are you going to do about them? And God, in his patience, though he does not owe it to Habakkuk, is going to answer that question too. And so all through chapter 6, he's going to cast on the nation of Babylon the coming woes to them, that they will also have pain. They will also have judgment. They will also have difficulty. And what's so fascinating about this is as God does for them, he often does in our lives. He's going to take the things that they trust in, the idols that were so vital to them, and he's going to use them and turn them on their head for the sake of his judgment. Here's, here's what I mean by this. In chapter 2, he's going to say, indeed, this is verse 7, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainders of the people will loot you. you. You make your way into security and you will become insecure. Your civilization will be replaced by violence and injustice. He goes on in verse 9 and says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 11, Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter, rafter will answer from the framework. You build your house in pain and theft, it's going to fall down in on you. Verse 15, uh, verse 16, so you fill, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. You glorying in the pain of others will ultimately be replaced by your shame. He concludes it this way, uh, what profit is the idol when its maker has carved it. Here's, here's what I think God's getting at, and this is where I, I want us to see this and how relevant it is in our lives 2,500 years later. Consistently, God's going to dismantle 
idols in all shapes and sizes and forms by replacing them with his glory. What that means is as you trust in things other than the Lord, oftentimes it's going to be those things that God destroys so that you can see who his nature is. That is a dangerous warning. But as you begin to place your faith, as you begin to trust and build your lives upon the earthly, unsettling, idolatrous things, thinking this is where all my hope lies, this is where all my peace lies, this is where all my value lies, it is frequently those things that get destroyed and pulled out from underneath you to reveal that you've placed hope in something false. Amen? Here, let, me, let me give you two examples, I think culturally, where we see this work right now. Uh, first of all, is the individualistic pride of American life, right? I'm pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I am an independent, self-made man. I don't need help from anybody. I make my way. I master my faith. I've decided my course, and I'm going to do it. And, and then a pandemic hits the world, and everything you had laid out and planned this year is gone. It's different, right? It's, it's changed in a way you could never imagine, right? Because consistently, God's going to dismantle your pride. You, you make plans, you lay out intentions, and he says you're boasting in your arrogance. And it is only by his mercy that he's going to take away those boasts. His wrath is going to let you just walk those things out and never see them at any point in your life until you die and realize you've never really trusted the Lord in your life. And yet, frequently, what God's going to do is going to take these areas of pride and he's going to destroy them so that what? So that his people can turn back to him. Let me give you another one. This one uh, especially pertinent in the next couple of weeks. Uh, over the past 40, 50 years, on both sides of the aisle has been this kind of bubbling up of hope that some political ideology and system would ultimately solve the problems in our nation. Uh, in fact, uh, just a few years ago, right, we had a candidate that ran with the slogan, hope, right? Like that was the slogan, that I'm bringing hope. How'd that go? Okay? Not only that, but to kind of pick on the other side of the aisle, we had uh, some 40, 50 years ago, a group of individuals connected to evangelical churches who formed a, a thing we called the moral majority. And it was this. Essentially, uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robinson, some guys, said, hey, if we come together and decide that we place all of our efforts on voting well and being moral and raising up people who are going to vote for the right people, that we might reform the nation and make it more moral. How are we doing 40 years later? We more moral? Right? Because, because here's the thing. You start to trust anything more than the Lord. It's going to be dismantled. He always dismantles idols. You know the one, the one most consistent thing about the political system in the United States right now? Nobody thinks that it's going to do any good. Come on, anybody? I mean, if you have a great deal of hope for how the election is going to turn out as reforming our nation, you're delusional, right? And, and so in this, you recognize that what's the hope of our country? It's, it doesn't have anything to do with politics. Our hope has to be rooted and grounded in faith in Jesus Christ alone. Over and over and over again, God has moved in such a way to remind his people that trust in Christ has to supersede 
all. You're always meant to come back to this. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And here's, here's what's so fascinating. Let me, let me finish with this last thought. Habakkuk, uh, much like Jonah, is a, a prophet written and ultimately recording a conversation that he has with God. Who else knows about it? Until he writes it down, nobody. Just him. And in the first two chapters, he looks like an idiot. Does he not, right? I mean, he is the guy who's warring with the sovereign God of the universe. Uh, In my human nature, my first thought is, why you write this down for everybody? Right? Like, you're the butt of the joke, my man. Just keep it to yourself. Here's, here's why. Because he writes chapter 3. Because, because I think one of the things we ought to be encouraged by in this little minor prophet is that much like the way God teaches us, God has chipped and moved and gotten to Habakkuk who finally realizes what it looks like to place faith in the Lord. Look at, look at how he responds in chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shiganoth, that's a uh, phrase for a, a song, Hebrew song. He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Here's his appeal. I get it, Lord. I'm dense, and it took me some time, but I get it. I'm not meant to trust in anything else. I'm not meant to hold in my esteem, in my faith, anything above you. I get it. And I, I see your wrath coming, and I'm praying be merciful. Remember mercy. Remember your people. And then uh, you can read this week, chapter 3 is beautiful. And, and it gets to this at the very end. Pick up with me in verse 16. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruits on the vine, though the yield of the olive should not fail, should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, and the Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on my high places. Here's what Habakkuk's concluding thought is. Let it happen. I'll wait for it, Lord. I see your wrath in all 
earthly consequences, though all these things might befall, I will exalt in you because you're enough. That 2,600 years later, I don't know what's coming any better than you do. Right? We, we do not know what tomorrow holds. I can assure you that the mercy and common grace and blessing of God will abound in some places in our lives. And perhaps it disappears in others. Here's the consistent refrain of Scripture as noted in Habakkuk. Even if it's gone, I'll exalt in you because you are enough. We're going to close with one last song. Um, Let me give you the context of it. It's a song built out of the book of Job. If you know anything about Job, what you find out is that uh, in an individual example, Job recognizes this truth and is taught this truth circumstantially in a harsher way than maybe any other person in all of the scripture. Life destroyed over the matter of two days. And in all of it, it says he doesn't sin, but rather he worships the Lord. He says, with, with nothing I came into this world, with nothing I will leave, blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, what we uh, sometimes know in the first two chapters of Job, we don't go on to read, the book is 42 chapters long. And at the very end, the very last chapter, Job, confessing to God, says this, I've heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What is the response to God? Let any circumstance befall us. Let anything happen to us. Ultimately, remember mercy and let us be a people that exalt in the Lord. That we look and see ourselves as servants of Him and that He is enough. Nothing in this world will realize your hope and nothing in this world will destroy it because you set your eyes upon the Lord of this world, the Lord of the universe in Christ alone. Pray with me. God, let our faith be in you. Let us be a people who wholly trust you. Whatever may befall us, whatever comes in our community, whatever comes in our nation, whatever comes in this world, whatever it might be, that we would appeal to you. Remember your mercy. Mercy that sees us not as objects of your wrath, but that we are redeemed, bought back by the fact that you placed that wrath upon your Son on the cross. That we place our faith in Christ, that we trust and exalt in Him that He is our salvation. And in it, that it's enough that anything in this world 
can befall us. Anything in this world can happen. And we will remain exalting in you for the glory of your name because you're enough. You're worth it, Lord. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand.